Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to the Maritime Ireland radio show. No man has ever served at sea without knowing that each day could be his last and no one would even know where at sea he lay. No man served a day at sea without the knowledge that the ship he sailed may not survive to sail another day. But no man at sea lets these fears overcome him. He knew his shipmates were beside him to help stand the watch, plot the course, and to be the family and support we all need to meet and survive another day. Shipmates are never forgotten. There is a bond of the sea, recalled there by John Gregory, at the graveside of 12 sailors killed in a battleship explosion in Cork Harbour in 1902. It was an exceptional commemoration ceremony for sailors killed aboard a British battleship, honoured by Irish seafarers because shipmates are not forgotten. We'll be telling you more about HMS Mars in this edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show. Also on the programme, we discuss the importance of ferries to this island nation. But is what the sea means to an island nation fully understood? In many ways, the Irish population still suffers from an element of sea blindness. And while we are an island nation and dependent on trade by the sea, I'm not sure we're fully clear on what that really means. Connor Moulds, Chief Commercial Officer of Cork Port, and we'll hear why fish farmers feel they are treated as poor relations of the Irish marine sector. We feel that aquaculture has got a very important role to play in the future of the seafood industry. Aquaculture in Ireland is a poor relation in terms of the other maritime countries in, in Europe. We're not taking advantage of the resources that we have in terms of aquaculture. That's Michael Molloy, Chairman of IFA Aquaculture from Westport in County Mayo on the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, which brings you the most comprehensive coverage of news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. sailors had been blown out through the turret hatch. Their bodies were not recovered. They were deemed to have been buried at sea. Another sailor's remains were being returned to his hometown in the UK. On Thursday the 17th, a very sad military funeral procession for the remaining eight victims made its way through the streets of Cove, on its way to the unfortunate victim's final resting place here in the old church graveyard. The old church cemetery on the outskirts of Cove on the edge of Cork Harbour is the burial place of many who lost their lives tragically at sea. Historically, Cork Harbour has been the most important strategic location for naval forces on the southwestern approaches from the Atlantic Ocean. So it was that the then British Royal Navy's Channel Squadron, HMS Mars, was carrying out target practice, ships firing at a towed target in April 1902, when a misfire happened, a shell jammed in the turret of a breech-loading gun. An explosion occurred while the sailors were trying to clear it, and 18 were killed. Members of the Royal Naval Association's Cork and County Branch and the ONE, Ireland's Organisation of National Ex-Servicemen, gathered to remember those who died on the battleship HMS Mars in 1902. The commemoration was attended by representatives from the Royal Navy and the British Embassy, local authorities and by local people. An impressive ceremony showing how people can be united. 
It is another of the many seafaring stories at the Old Church Cemetery on Tay Road in Cove, uniquely distinguished by the many graves associated with maritime tragedies, which Hendrik Verway, a board member of Cove Tourism, told me about. The cemetery... It's very cosmopolitan, I've seen it described that, but particularly it's a cemetery of seafaring people. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there are 11,000 people buried, and I suppose in, in, you know, in the scheme of cemeteries, it's not really a very old cemetery because the first headstone is from 1698, so that doesn't make it a particularly old cemetery. But I suppose because of Cove and Queenstown's um, importance as, as a port and a, a naval base and, you know, a, a base of the British Empire, I suppose, a lot of the people buried here would have, would have been on ships or come off ships or were the victims of, of shipping tragedies. It includes the Mars ceremony, which we've just been attending, which is very interesting to see an Irish group commemorating a British group. It's a great, it's something lovely to see. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, um, and you you see it here today with representatives of the British Embassy, with representatives of the British Navy, and that is the case with every commemoration. You know, you have the Titanic commemoration in Cove every year. You have the Lusitania commemoration, and it doesn't really matter, you know, where where the people were from. Um, it goes across it goes across the boundaries, and you know, there's a lot of respect shown. And this graveyard, you know, in particular, it's exceptionally well kept. Um, for many years, it was kept by the the Tidy Towns group with help from volunteers and the probation service and more recently since Covid I suppose you know when, when things fell apart uh, Cork County Council really stepped up to the mark and now this cemetery is maintained you know there's a regular schedule of, of maintenance so it's fantastic to see but it, you know shipping tragedies and, and stuff like that it, it transcends boundaries. As you say, the Lusitania graves are up there, many of them. But everywhere you seem to walk, as I've walked this afternoon along the passageways, there are seafaring people, names of ships, deaths of passengers, deaths in tragedy, I suppose deaths as they happened normally, maybe at sea, but a huge maritime connection. Yeah, absolutely. You see names that you, you wouldn't see elsewhere in the country. You know, you could spend a, you could spend a day easily walking around um, at, Luckily, there are two information boards at the, at the entrance to the cemetery. But, you know, just to give you an example, like there were 170 people buried from the Lusitania. Um, there's, there's a ship, the, the Anglo-Californian, that was torpedoed as well. Um, so their captain is, is buried here. Um, the, you know, the, the, the sinking of the Lusitania... One of the boats, the Flying Fish, was a, a, a tender that used to bring passengers in and out. And uh, Captain Brierley... Um, brought most of the people who were recovered from the Lusitania, and that was that was over 600 people. Uh, brought them ashore, most of them into Queenstown. Um, so his grave is there. Um, there's a there's an actual portrait of him on his headstone, which is a very very clear image uh, of you know a man that played a, a hugely important role. Um, his his ship, the Flying Fish, was, was a very very small ship, but it, it brought all those people into Queenstown to safety, I suppose. Um, and there's lots more. There's a fantastic headstone to a man called William Donovan, um, another seafarer, a young man. And I think he was only 26 when he died. But the carving on it of a, of a magnificent sailing ship is absolutely, you know, it, it's the best I've seen. So there's lots to be discovered in this cemetery. A wonderful place for anybody with a seafaring interest to come when visiting Cove? Absolutely, you know, I suppose it's just one little part. And, you know, it is visited by tourists right throughout the year. The, the rail tours, um, bus tour comes here every single day of the year, um, which is, it's, it's amazing to see. And of course, you know, they, they head for the Lusitania Platz predominantly, but there is so much more here. And, you know, their guides tell them all that, you know, there's Celtic crosses. There, there's so much history here. Of course, Jack Doyle is buried here as well. So, you know, it's not just seafarers, but uh, there's so much here. Aquaculture, fish farming, is an increasingly important source of seafood, particularly with pressure on wild-caught fisheries. But is it as fully appreciated and valued as it should be? Fish farmers are members of IFA Aquaculture, part of the Irish Farmers Association, and they met in Westport County, Mayo, for their first face-to-face -face annual conference since pandemic restrictions were removed. Michael Molloy is their chairman, 
and they were on his home waters. He also has long experience in providing marine services to the finfish and shellfish industries around the coast and owns Black Shell Farm in Clue Bay, where he began mussel farming in 1983. I was a founding partner of Black Shell Farm in 1983. Um, I've been producing mussels full-time in Clue Bay since then. Uh, also provides uh, both services for finfish and shellfish operations up and down the coast. And I've been a member of national committees on and off over those years. But it was started from scratch in 1982 and founded a company called Black Shell Farmers in 1983 with two other partners. I subsequently bought out the other two partners and the sole shareholder at the moment. It's a completely uh, based on the natural resource of Clue Bay. There's no uh, seed imported or feed or treatment or any, any interference whatsoever. We just provide a surface forest. So we provide structures on the on the surface of the water and we use about 400,000 metres of rope on which the mussels are seeded. And we do the husbandry there to keep them produced the best quality we can within the natural constraints of the bay. And where's the market then? The market, well, we're fortunate. We have a processing factory right beside us here called Connemara Seafoods and we ha- they have a pier there so we can go in with the boat and uh, supply them with bulk bags full of mussels. We also supply fresh markets in on the continent in Europe and supply other processors in different parts of the country. Uh, we produce approximately about a thousand tons a year. A good place to be operating from, Clue Bay. It's great because our biotoxin profile is very good. We don't suffer from closures like uh, the like happen frequently down the southwest. So we're, we're it's a good place yet yeah, indeed. We feel that aquaculture has got a very important role to play in the future of the seafood industry. Um, we're in a different world now. Uh, the era of cheap fossil fuel is over. And uh, it was pointed out at that meeting the benefits of the shellfish sector in terms of conversion of energy to protein. So it has a very important role to play, I believe. Generally speaking, seafood uh, industry has been overlooked uh, historically and uh, more recently as well, just people, the level of awareness of the maritime resource in the country, as you know yourself, is very poor. Um, the and the legislation and administrative abilities of, of the of you know of successive governments have been poor uh, in dealing with the resource. What's needed, Michael, to make it better? Uh, well, it's just that we need to have the legislative and administrative change uh, that has to be acted on to avoid the stagnation of the agriculture industry. And, and that is, that's what has happened. There has been a seafood, uh, 2021 business seafood uh, report just come out and uh, the, com- the total value of agriculture has dropped by 2%. Now, that's, uh, uh, it's not all down to volume reduction. There were, were price problems, especially in the in the finfish area, but uh, they have since recovered. But it's uh, generally the notion of shared space. The shared marine resource is not being tackled well in this country. We've ignored the issue, and uh, we started off in a very poor space because uh, the um, designations of special areas, special areas, uh, uh, SPAs and SACs, special conservation areas, was ignored by government, and then it had to be... um, shoehorned in in a very uh, rapid and expensive way and uh, the industry has been paying for that uh, oversight for for decades now. So we're on the back foot. They've just dealt with the shellfish licensing, the process for licensing the uh, 37 applications at the moment for finfish operations and they haven't they're, they're at the early stages, uh, you know, even after, after years, they're still at the early stages. Licensing has always been a problem which the organisation has been pointing out and also, obviously, you've had many difficulties with environmental organisations. So all of that, does it make aquaculture difficult? It does. It has uh, slowed down the pace of development of aquaculture. Um, aquaculture in Ireland is, is very is a, is, a, is a poor relation in terms of the other maritime countries in, in Europe. Um, 
uh, we're, we're not taking advantage of, of the resources that we have in terms of agriculture. Uh, of course, we haven't we've given away our maritime resources anyway, and the fishing industry would, 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 would make that uh, point. So uh, it, it needs to be improved. Uh, there are a very small number of individuals, very vociferous uh, individuals that are overrepresented and have uh, held the industry back. And uh, I think this is, a, this is a problem. Generally, it's not just a relation to the agriculture industry. It's obviously related to forestry and to all sorts of uh, economic development in this country that, that, that were being paralyzed by uh, a, a tiny minority who are, have sufficient resources to take judicial reviews and all the rest of it to, to paralyze the industry. And that, unfortunately, is happening. Finally, Michael, would you... Um change anything you're still very enjoying the business very much into aquaculture oh, absolutely yeah i think it's great i think the, it, the thing that got me into aquaculture for, uh, in the first place was the fact that you can make uh, good food from virtually nothing uh, so you just put, you're just filtering tiny organisms from the sea and you're making fantastic protein from it uh, emitting very little carbon and reuse very little fuel i think this keeps me very happy yeah i, I i'm gonna stay with it Michael Molloy in Westport, chairman of IFA Aquaculture, outlining how fish farmers feel about the way they have been treated. A new survey of wintering water birds in Irish wetlands shows that they are indicators of the health of wetland environments. But loss of habitat, changes to water quality, increased disturbances on lakes and in estuaries mean there are fewer and fewer water birds in Ireland. Niall Hatt joins us from Birdwatch Ireland, the national organisation protecting bird and biodiversity based at Kilcool in County Wicklow. Every winter, hundreds of dedicated bird surveyors count the water birds in their localities as part of the Irish Wetland Bird Survey, or IWEBS for short. The survey has been running since 1994, funded by the National Parks and Wildlife Service and coordinated by Birdwatch Ireland. A recent study of the survey's annual results examined the changes in 36 wintering waterbird species at 97 of the most closely monitored wetland sites, spanning 15 counties across Ireland. It has revealed that while 15 waterbird species are stable or increasing, 20 are declining, including six species that have decreased by over 50% since the mid-1990s. The greatest declines have been seen in diving duck species, namely goldeneye, pochard and scop, which have dropped by 65-90% to 90% on average since the mid-1990s across the 97 sites analysed. Climate change and warming winter temperatures are undoubtedly key drivers of these declines, allowing these birds to spend the winter closer to their breeding grounds in northern Europe. At a more local level in Ireland, loss of habitat, changes to water quality, increased disturbance on lakes and in estuaries and poorly situated developments all worsen the situation, meaning fewer and fewer of these birds return to us each year. Wading birds of the plover family have also undergone massive declines of over 50%. The lapwing, for example, has declined by 64% since the mid-1990s. Its close relative, the golden plover, which feeds on grasslands in every county in Ireland in the winter, has declined by a similar amount, as has their rarer coastal relative, the grey plover. Ireland's breeding curly population is well known to be teetering on the edge of extinction, with only around 100 pairs nesting here in recent summers. Our wintering population is significantly larger, as curlews from northern Europe migrate to Ireland from late summer to early spring, but these birds face similar threats throughout their range. Our wintering curlew numbers have declined by 43% since the mid-1990s. There have also been some winners. The black-tailed godwit, a member of the same family as the curlew and a winter visitor to Ireland from Iceland, has increased by 92% since annual monitoring began in 1994. Species such as mute swan, little grebe and grey heron, which breed at Irish lakes and rivers, are all stable or increasing in number. One of Ireland's most recent arrivals, the little egret, has shown a steady and significant increase since it arrived into Ireland 20 years ago, and the species is now widespread across the entire country. Birds with mixed report cards include the light-bellied Brent goose, which has increased overall but has shown a recent decline. Numbers of sandlings, the species on which the Pixar short movie Piper was based, are 85% higher than they were when monitoring began, but have decreased by 24% over the last five years. Recent declines of this magnitude are cause for concern, and there is a risk that longer-term increases for some species could be quickly undone in a few short years. Birdwatch Ireland regularly carries out analysis of this kind at national level, providing a health check to see how Ireland's wintering waterbirds are doing, 
and now we are delving deeper to see precisely where the problems lie. Our water birds are indicators of the health of the wetland environments that they use, and these are sites that we humans depend on too, for drinking water, flood relief, agriculture, tourism, aquaculture and industry. As is always the case with this sort of research, it has answered some questions, but has posed many more, and we will be scrutinising these results in the months and years to come to try to detect patterns of change that might not be so immediately obvious. You can support Birdwatch Ireland's vital species and habitat conservation work by becoming a member. For full details, please visit www.birdwatchireland.ie. Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland there. Now Anton O'Callaghan has a roundup of current maritime news. Our ports are our doors to the world through the sea, across which over 90% of Irish exports and imports move. The past month has seen major developments in the country's ports sector. Rosslare Europort, now describing itself as the gateway to Europe, which is operated under the aegis of Irnud Ern, announced a major investment plan. Europort manager Glenn Carr says planned investment of €200 million will create an offshore wind hub there, which will have the capacity to create 2,000 jobs for the southeast. Corkport Company brought its new container terminal at Ringeskiddy in the Lower Harbour area into operation. This is an investment of €86 million, which the port's chief commercial officer, Conor Mowles, says is a monumental milestone, the largest investment in the port's 250-year history. Dublin Port announced that volumes of cargo through the port increased by 13.7% in the first quarter of this year. Unitised trade with the UK recovered strongly, increasing by 23% and unitised trade with EU countries continued to grow, increasing by 1.8%. These were encouraging figures against the background of a large decline in the same period last year because of Brexit. Waterford Port welcomed its first cruise liner in two years. Norwegian expedition cruise liner Maud made her maiden call, the first cruise ship to visit there since the pandemic disruption. She is named after one of the most famous polar vessels, Roald Amundsen's Maud. Harbourmaster Captain Darren Doyle says 27 cruise vessels will call to Waterford by the end of September, with a total of 35,000 passengers and 16,000 crew members. This will deliver a much-needed boost to the regional tourism economy of €3.5 million, he said. Galwayport announced plans to become Ireland's first hydrogen hub, dedicated to developing hydrogen as an alternative energy source, with offshore wind being a key factor. The Galway Hydrogen Hub will involve combining the resources and expertise of seven groups, including the Port of Galway and NUI Galway. Dunlira Harbour's new passenger ship Tender Pontoon was brought into use. The 40 metre by 4.5 metre floating pontoon is located at number 4 berth on the east side of St Michael's Pier and is being used to ferry passengers ashore from visiting cruise liners. Turning from those positive developments at the ports to the concerns of the fishing industry, where the Killybegs Fishermen's Organisation in Donegal has lodged a formal complaint with the European Union's Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly against the European Fisheries Commission. Killybeg's chief executive, Sean O'Donoghue, says the Commission has serious questions to answer about damaging allegations it has made against the Irish fishing industry. These are in relation to its refusal to grant access to a 2018 control audit report and a subsequent administrative inquiry which the industry has been complaining about for some time. That's all tied in with the whole uh, uh, debacle of the pelagic uh, wave in, in Chile Bates and, uh, you know, which is uh, totally intolerable what's going on there at the moment. We won a High Court case in June last year, uh, which uh, made it clear that the ESFPA were acting illegally and insisting that the flow scales be publicly owned and that the Commission had no right to request the ESFPA to do that, which is still happening in the interim control plan. So um, uh, it is more scalling and uh, it is totally unacceptable. And uh, it all stems back to the uh, control audit report in 2018, which uh, 
they have point blankly refused us access uh, to this. So we're being told that uh, everything that relates to uh, to the flow scales relates to this report, but still we're not being able to to challenge it or to uh, to actually even see the the report from a from a, a legal point of view. We just can't uh, challenge it, and we are. What, what's happening here is, is we're uh, we're we're guilty uh, until we prove our innocence, but we can't even prove our innocence because we can't get access to the document. I, I find this absolutely incredible. Uh, we live in, in the European Union uh, under the treaties and under democracy, and this certainly isn't that. Two non-Irish fishing vessels refused to unload their catches at Killybegs in the past month under the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority regulations about weighing, which, the industry says, can damage the quality of fish. That led to workers being temporarily laid off at a port processing factory. One of the vessels went to Derry and unloaded there. The SFPA has denied that its processes will affect catches. That has not satisfied the industry, so the complaint has been made to the European Ombudsman. The Human Rights at Sea International Non-Governmental Organization established in 2014 has accused Russia of committing war crimes against international seafarers and merchant vessels. It reported that 11 merchant ships had been fired on in the opening 50 days of the war, with two seafarers killed and a further number injured. A number of other ships have been detained by Russian forces, with crews forcibly taken off the ships. Entry to all Irish ports and harbours is now barred to ships, yachts and recreational craft registered under the Russian flag, including to any which changed registration to another state since 24th February, the date of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Exceptions are allowed for coal, natural gas, oil and refined petroleum, pharmaceutical, medical and agricultural products, humanitarian purposes and emergency safety situations. May 10 has been set as the start date for decommissioning works on subsea structures of the Kinsale and Seven Heads gas fields on the south coast. Kinsale Energy, the company which will undertake the work, has told the Department of Transport that the works should take an estimated 20 days. Marine Notice No. 20 from the department has full details. And finally, marking World Penguins Day, the international organisation which studies them in Antarctica said that they were vitally important for what they can tell researchers about climate change. It all starts with penguins, according to Oceanites, the US non-profit organisation based in Washington DC. Penguins are essential to ensuring the conservation of Antarctica for future generations as they cope with exceptional warming of the climate there by 3 degrees centigrade year-round and 5 degrees in winter. How they cope will tell humans a lot. And that's this month's Maritime News Roundup. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. You're listening to the monthly Maritime Ireland radio show, bringing you comprehensive and informative news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. Let's go now to a mecca of the yangling world, Loch Sheelan, as it's described by Miles Kelly of Fisheries Ireland, the state agency for our rivers and estuaries. Hello, Tom. Good to see you again. What's new in the world of angling, you ask? Well, here at Inland Fisheries Ireland, we recently launched a new survey that's going to tap into the knowledge of the trout anglers on Loch Sheelan. The survey will use that tool we spoke to you about last year called Flexi, which will help to track ecological changes through local knowledge. Loch Sheelan is a real angling mecca, and every season thousands of anglers travel to County Cavan to try their luck at this fabulous wild brown trout fishery. But it's not just its angling credentials that made it famous. Unfortunately, there was a time when the lake was in the news quite often due to water quality issues, with fish kills grabbing headlines in the 80s and 90s. Many of the causes of pollution have been dealt with, and there has been considerable investment in habitat enhancement and other development works to maximise the spawning potential of the streams that feed Loch Sheelan. It's once again got a reputation for being the destination for anglers who want to catch big brown trout on fly, which is hard to match. 
So it's also a lake with a history of dramatic environmental changes over the last 40 years. And the anglers were there through all these changes. Because of this, the Flexi Survey will give trout anglers on Loch Sheelan an exciting opportunity to share their knowledge as citizen scientists and to make a valuable contribution towards fisheries management on the lake. Wild brown trout are well known to feed opportunistically on seasonal gluts of prey. If there is something there to be eaten, they're likely to be having a cut off it. When we see swarms of insects buzzing about the lake, such as mayflies, midges, sedgeflies, and even daddy longlegs, trout are likely to be keyed into the opportunity for an easy meal. Trout anglers are no strangers to this, and they select artificial flies and lures that match the hatch. You know, they pick a bait that mimics the prey that the trout are feeding on. Many do this almost on instinct, because for years they have been closely observing the lake environment and its wildlife throughout the angling season, looking not just at the obvious buzzing insects flying about, but other signs and patterns that may indicate what the trout are likely to take on any day. So this survey FLEXI, which stands for Fisher's Local Ecological Knowledge Surveillance Indicators, will feature questions for anglers about their catch and about different aspects of the fishery now compared to when they started fishing on the lake. Anglers spend many hours outside observing nature and the fish they catch. IFI recognises that this accumulated local knowledge is valuable and has potential for citizen science that can provide important insights for fisheries management into the future. If you fish for trout on Loch Sheelan, please take the opportunity to share your knowledge by following the link at fisheriesireland.ie. Now this is where it gets exciting, Tom. Each participant in the survey also has the opportunity to enter into a prize draw for angling tackle with one 200 euro voucher and two 100 euro vouchers to be won. So once again, if you want to take part in the Loch Sheelan survey and be in with the chance of winning up to 200 euros of angling tackle vouchers, visit fisheriesireland.ie. That's all I have, Tom. Tight lines. Now, there's an offer for you. Thank you, Miles Kelly of Fisheries Ireland. And we stay with angling where the skill of fly tying enables anglers to catch fish. It's amazing, requiring huge ability and dexterity. And it's chronicled in a book published by Fisheries Ireland called The 1902 Cork Collection of Salmon Flies. It's available free and has stunning photography. Angling advisor Shane O'Reilly managed the publication project, which arose from the 1902 International Exhibition in Cork. The 1902 Exhibition in Cork, it, it, it gathered uh, together a lot of, I, I suppose, trades and sports and even, even art from around Ireland and exhibited it there for people to come and see. I think it went on for the, a number of months in Cork. And somebody, somebody back then had a very bright idea, I suppose, of going around Ireland and picking out the best fly tyres around the country and getting them to tie up specific salmon flies for each of the districts, uh, the fishing districts in Ireland. Now, fly tying and fly fishing has uh, has been very important in Ireland for numbers of years. And Irish fly tyres back then, some of them had great repute around the world uh, and, and still do, I believe. And uh, so we now have a collection of nearly 400 flies dating back from 1902 and uh, they're in really good condition and yeah we've just published them in a book for all to see it can be an extremely intricate uh, but also very enjoyable thing to do. Some of the flies that, that are tied are on minuscule hooks and you would all, you would almost need to use a magnifying glass to tie them and they're very very, very delicate. The flies in this particular collection are, are larger but they're no less intricate because of the number of materials and that, that they use. Some of the flies would be using, you know, maybe 20 different materials, types of feather and fur, etc, etc, all wrapped around the hook and all done with a great delicacy and I suppose artistic flair when you look at the flies. This really has a culture of its own fly tying. Yes, it does indeed. And Irish fly tying has a particular culture. Back in the days when English gentry used to come over here to fish in Ireland, they had a particular style of fly that they used. And it was it was kind of more regimented, I suppose. And it was kind of particular in the types of colour that they used. And when Irish people started to see these flies, they started to devise their own types of tyings. And, and a particular type of Irish fly evolved over the years. And it 
it was much more, they, their use of colour was much more profound and it, it just adopted a particular type of or a style, I suppose. And that then influenced fly tyres back in the UK and then around the world. And, and so the, the Irish fly tying heritage is, is very strong and it's got great cultural, it, there's a great cultural background to it in Ireland. And is there a particular type of fly then for each type of fish? Well, there, there, I suppose there is. There's different types of flies that you would tie for different types of fish. So salmon flies tend to be bright and colourful because what you're trying to do with a salmon, the salmon doesn't actually feed when it enters fresh water. So it's not actually looking for food. You're trying to stimulate the salmon to attack something. So they're bright and gaudy. But uh, a fly for a trout would be much more similar to an aquatic fly. You would have more muted colours and you'd be trying to actually represent a fly that will be hatching out in water then again if you were tying a fly for something like a pike uh, or a bass in the sea you would be tying something to represent a small fish which would be the prey of those fish you will find that a lot of people who fly fish such as myself will tie flies as well and um, because it's part and parcel of, of the pastime there's nothing there's nothing like sitting at a, a fly tying bench and tying up your own fly and and bringing it out there on the water and catching a fish with it, it, it it's just part of the whole thing there are over 380 a huge number of individual salmon flies catalogued for the project. They come from many parts around Ireland. Yes, they do. So they come from about 20 fisheries districts because that's the way the country was divided up then. And and you will find that different different districts would have different styles of fly. The ones, for for instance, on the Shannon, uh, for fishing on the Shannon, tend to be quite large compared to other rivers and they tend to be quite colourful. Uh, you will find that then flies from the east coast and from the west coast, particularly the west coast, will be smaller and, and will be drabber. And, and, and that kind of reflects the difference in, in, in rivers and lakes around the country. This book, the, the whole concept of it, came from Ted Malone, one of the greatest writers about angling uh, over the years. He was, he, he, he was, and he, he wrote a couple of books on, on, on traditional Irish fly tying, and he was a great person for cataloguing some of the old, old dressings of flies. Uh, each of these flies has particular dressings, which is the combination of materials that, that make them up, so furs and feathers and the way that they're tied in and so on and so forth. And, and some of those dressings, you know, can become lost over time, and it takes people like Ted to catalogue these dressings and keep them for, for people like me to learn uh, learn how to tie and, and so on and so forth. So he was instrumental in us being able to produce this book. He passed away about five years ago, but Peter Keeley and Peter Dunn, also experts in fly tying, and of course yourselves in IFI, managed to put all this together. Yes, we did. So Ted and and the two Peters, they they were invited down to IFI offices uh, when we uh, when we had this collection, and they would have photographed it and they would have taken meticulous notes as to the dressings of each of the flies. And in recent years, I've been working with them, particularly Peter Keeley, to just get those and fine tune them and take the photographs and make sure that we had every everything everything right as regards the dressings, uh, so that we could bring this publication out. It sounds to me, Shane, like a, a long lost treasure of Irish angling now being available and you're making it available to everybody. Yes, we are. So you will find that a lot of these fly tying books, because of the, the, the amount of pictures involved in, involved in them, they can be quite expensive to produce as printed books. And therefore, they're quite expensive for people to buy. And that can be prohibitive. You know, if you've got to go and spend 40 or 50 euros on a hardback uh, book, you know, not everybody can afford that. So we decided that the best way to get these out to everybody that might be interested in them was to make it available as a, as a free digital publication that anybody can log on online and they can go through and they can read it then. Now we may go down the route of producing a printed book later down the line. We've had some requests for that but we just felt that because it's something that we were holding, we were kind of custodians of it for the Irish state and we felt it was appropriate to let it out there for as many people as possible so that's why we chose to put it online as a free resource. That's very commendable and well done to Shane O'Reilly and Fisheries Ireland. Even if you're not an angler, it's well worth looking up. 
now the importance of ferry services to this island nation. Would I be considered biased if I said they're easier to use than crowded airports, perhaps? Anyway, I discussed this with Conor Moulds, Chief Commercial Officer of Cork Port, where Brittany Ferries has introduced a second weekly service from there to Roscoff, and the port has also started operating its new €85 million Euro container port at Ringeskiddy. First, the importance of ferry services for this island nation. If we look at what ferries, Ropax ferries, give us a, in compare and contrast to planes, it allows families both in Ireland and indeed France and in the other countries that are connected to pack up in their car, to bring all of the essentials with them, to travel in a comfortable style, to have cabins to themselves. And and in a time when we're post-Covid and we know the uh, concerns that people have around uh, social distancing and such, the ferries offer a logistical solution that allows you to bring your family in a safe manner in a comfortable way. Uh, across the ocean and and, uh, I think we're going to see a resurgence in the popularity of ferries. And if I may say so, easier than going to a crowded, challenging, delaying times at an airport? I I don't think you could have said it any better. And the reality is that while, while one has to queue to go on a ferry, it's in your own car, in your own environment, with your family. And then you and then to board Many, many take cabins. The comfort of that, comfort of your cabin, your safety, your security, going to the restaurant and back again. They provide a solution that I think people are now turning to in, in comparison to the challenges that are brought by uh, air travel. Now we're on board the Armourique of Brittany Ferries for the start of what is a twice a week rather than once a week service between Cork and Roscoff. That's a boon, obviously, to the south. Very much so, and what we'll see for this season now is a resurgent and revitalised service to Roscoff with both the Amarique midweek and the pont during the weekend offering that enhanced service. And we believe that will bring significant uh, contributions to the local economy. In the region, possibly of about 4 million to the economy here in Ireland in terms of additional tourist traffic. It's hugely important. The connections here are 45 years old and we are delighted to see the return of our Britney series service. Cockport, we're sitting in now. I was passing the huge cranes. Extremely impressive. It's a major time of change for Ringeskiddy and for the port. Hugely. The, these, the two cranes that you, you speak about represent an 86 million euro investment by the port of Cork in our future and indeed the future of the region. We'll have Ireland's truly most modern deep sea multi-purpose uh, low, low berth. And we'll see the largest container ships that dock at the country here. Um, we'll see, a, again, uh, we'll see enhanced uh, connectivity, um, which itself is articulated by our transatlantic service, the only transatlantic service between Ireland and uh, the East Coast of America, the first one since the transatlantic liner ceased uh, in the early 60s. Uh, the port o'clock staff that operate those cranes are highly skilled and indeed highly trained, and so we work with our partners, Lieber, in training those skills in the whole of it. I mean, the productivity that we expect from our crane drivers um, in a safe manner is uh, of a very high level. So, finally, challenging, in- encouraging times? Challenging, certainly. We are heavily geared with, the, with our, the investments we've made. We've never been in that position before. Exciting, absolutely. And uh, one, can, one can see that straight away by the enhanced Conroe services we've brought in, in the last 18 months to, uh, with direct routes to Zeebrugge and Antwerp with Grimaldi and with CLDN. We'll uh, maintain now two container terminals, both in Tivoli and our new container terminal, CCT. We'll see a return of crews, and as we are here today, we'll see a return of our row packs. So we're significantly busier than we've ever been, and exciting times to support trade facilitation in this part of the country. Do the public fully appreciate the importance of ports? We were talking about ferries, you're talking about connectivity, the direct service to the states. Does the public fully understand the importance of the ports as the gateway to Ireland and the export gateway? I'm not convinced they fully understand the extent of it. I think in in, in many ways the Irish population still suffers from an element of sea blindness. And while we are an island nation and, uh, and dependent on trade by the sea, I'm not sure we're fully clear on what that really means. But I think we'll learn more 
um, as we go forward, both in terms of our maritime professionals that man those uh, ports and, ve and vessels, but also the importance of trade, particularly post-Brexit, because now we can see that we no longer have to go through that direct route. We have direct routes to the continent, maintaining the supply chains and keeping Ireland and its economy in good health. Conor Moles of the Port of Cork and Monica McLaverty, Southern Europe Manager at Tourism Ireland, has no doubt about the vital service that ferries provide. Absolutely. And we know that um, since Brexit, the links between Ireland by ferry have increased from 12 to over 40 direct sailings per week. And we're absolutely delighted to be working with Brittany Ferries, who have doubled their rotations here into Cork. So French people will now have the choice of spending a week's holiday or three to four days or maybe a week and a half. So there's so much more choice. And as Brittany Ferry says, the holiday starts once people board the ship. The value being put on it is something like four or five million to a local economy. That's a lot of income. It is. We're, we're, in 2019, we welcomed 557,000 visitors from France. And we know that over half of these visitors stayed at least a week. So these are visitors that want to spend a long time and their, their full holiday, their principal holiday in Ireland. So this increased access is hugely important to us at a time when people are looking for more sustainable options. They want to bring their car. They want to travel around. So two years without ferries, and obviously there are more ferry companies than Brittany serving Ireland, Irish ferries and the UK ferries. That was a bad period then when ferries were off. People really saw the fact that an island nation needs ferries. Absolutely, and I think that direct access is crucially important for us. We, we haven't really had overseas tourism for the past two years. Um, the season is looking positive. We had Mehel and Meet the Buyer last week, where we brought in over 200 overseas buyers, and Tourism Ireland with our partners Folcha Ireland um, had uh, networking events where lots of business was being done. So the outlook is looking positive for this year and we're looking to rebuild back in 2022 and 2023 and ferry access will be a big part of our message overseas. Finally, the, the Wild Atlantic Way is built on really the maritime sphere, the coastal sphere. Does the public fully realise the value we have in that whole maritime sector? I think the Wild Atlantic Way, and in French it's known as La Côte Sauvage, and uh, it really resonated really strongly over 35 years ago when a singer called Michel Sardou brought out a song called Les Lacs du Connemara and the French all wanted to visit Connemara. So since the onset of the Wild Atlantic Way with 2,500 kilometres of signed waymarked ways, it really helps us to promote the fact that there are 2,500 kilometres of this beautiful scenery. So we know that from France, we welcome between 30 and 40% of repeat visitors. So maybe they've gone to Connemara for their first visit, but there's so much more to discover after that. A huge marine resource then to be fully appreciated? I think the coastal um, opportunity that Ireland has in France resonates really strongly. We know, of course, there's the big sailing affinity between France and Ireland, but also the seafood and the oysters and um, food, of course, really, really appeals to the French and they want to discover that natural resource that we have. Um, the Solitaire de Figaro has been here in the past and we hope we will welcome it again. And that really helps us as well to promote the fact that we are that island destination and particularly in Brittany, where we know sailing is, is second nature to the Bretons, um, that affinity with Cork and with Ireland is really strong. So we certainly want to tap into that. Monica McLaverty, Southern Europe Manager at Tourism Ireland, speaking to me at the announcement by Britain News Ferries of its second weekly service in midweek from Cork to France. On to inland waterways now, and specifically the Royal Canal Greenway, which has won a European award. And there's a Dutch connection with that. Justin Marr told us about it previously. Now he's following up the success for Waterways Ireland in his Marr report. Hi, ik ben Jessica, de fietsvlogger. Ierland is mijn tweede thuisland. Als student raakte ik smoor verliefd op de muziek, het landschap en de mensen. 
Last September on this program, I spoke to Dutch cycling journalist Jessica de Korte and singer-songwriter Paul O'Brien ahead of their trip to the Royal Canal Greenway to film their experiences of a three-day cycling trip along the 130-kilometre route. Their three-part series of videos is now available on the Vietvlogger YouTube channel. And for Paul, it was a remarkable experience. It was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. I'd never been through that part of the country on a bicycle. I'd only ever just passed through it on the car. really was a whole new area for me to discover. Starting off in Minute, which is wonderfully picturesque, the facilities are fantastic, the cycle is fantastic, everything you need. Bicycles are excellent. You can get panniers, tools, you name it, any, everything you need for a multi-day trip, you can get there. The most important thing about this was, especially cycling in Ireland, is that we were really off the road almost the whole way. We hardly even heard a road as we were cycling. And for multi-days, it's really good if you have a decent map of where you're going to go for places to stop for a cup of tea, for overnight stays or for major meals and the highlights along the trip. And again, the waterways have done a great job on that. There's even an interactive map for along the way that you can just click on accommodation. It was just very well laid out. The route is fantastic, it really is. And you get the best advice in the world. You can do well camping oh, here. Oh yeah, yeah, some great wild camping here. We've got toilets, showers, even a washing machine. Uh, there's a bike hire there's guy a here, he'll show you a card for access for the showers and the washing machine. Okay. And you can wild camp uh, lots of places along the canal. It's been an impressive first year for the Royal Canal Greenway and was recently capped off with winning the European Cycle Route of the Year Award at the leading Dutch walking and cycling fair, Fjerts and Vandalpas. Between 30 and 40,000 people who come along to that fair and they want to find out about new routes and, you know, where to explore in Europe. Norma Forrest represented Waterways Island at the fair. There were nominees from Belgium and Germany and obviously the Netherlands as well. Long distance, beautiful routes. And for the Royal Canal Greenway to be selected, it's a wonderful accolade to receive. Waterways Ireland have received it on behalf of not just yourselves, but also the other partners, because it has been a partnership with the local authorities and with local communities who are very much behind it and they're great ambassadors for it. It's astonishing to win within a year of it opening. It opened officially in March 2021. So it just goes to show how special this place actually is. The judges themselves loved that it was primarily off-road. It was safe and segregated and a world away. But they also loved the après cycling. You know, it was the fact that along that journey, so much warm hospitality on offer. There are so many fabulous little B&Bs and hotels and cafes and anybody who's involved in cycling knows that, you know, you have to fuel along the way. And it was the warmth of that welcome, I think, that really struck them as well during their visit. That warm welcome was something that singer-songwriter Paul O'Brien experienced firsthand through filming the video series. One of the places we stopped off, that was, it really was like being thrown back to Ireland in the good old days. At uh, Lock 26, Cluna Hay, there's a coffee and tea place run by Leslie Whelan there. It's fantastic. It's, it's absolutely idyllic little spot. And he dragged us into, dragged us in, we were, didn't burn complain, to see the old uh, lock keeper's house. And Claire Christie is uh, the daughter of a lock keeper. Her husband was a lock keeper. And she sang some songs for us. And we were there, we were there for hours. Daddy was a musician, singer, character. On the stage with plays as well. He was everything as well as a lock keeper. And he taught us all we know about the environment, how to respect it. Like Paddy and I, since we started the Foss game here, we planted 700 trees here in 20 years. He loved everything about the canal and the water and the otters and the swans and everybody that worked on it. We were all together. It was a lovely big family. It really was like, this is what people dream about when they go to Ireland. It's just somebody, oh, come into the house, have a cup of tea and get stories. And the whole trip was a breath of fresh air. It really was. It's early days for the Royal Canal Greenway, but the signs are very promising. Recent research has discovered significant local engagement that is already providing a substantial economic boost to the area. The results of the study show that there were 
something like 640,000 visitors coming to the Greenway over that first year. Very much a local market, obviously, because of the period that we were in. Half of those users were using it at least once a week, and 10% of all users were using it every day. The results of the, the research indicate that it's generating an economic impact in the region of 17 million every year. The domestic market use it and love it. Um, and we want to get international visitors to come and experience and enjoy it as well. Um, that gives these markets an opportunity to explore Ireland in a different way. We have been aware for quite some time of the potential from activity tourism. We've all been driving towards creating that sense of Ireland as a premier activity tourism destination. Our landscapes are wonderful. We have a wealth of opportunities with our waterways, with our mountains, and now with our cycle routes and our canals. Um, it can be broken down and done from point to point for a short section, but it's an attractive proposition for an avid cyclist who wants to travel for 60 kilometers a day and have an overnight at the midpoint. It's got a lot to offer for a very wide audience. I've recommended to a lot of people, and hopefully some of them will actually do it. Really can put my hand in the fire for this trip. It's top class. You can check out Paul and Jessica's video series at the Fietzvlogger YouTube channel. That's F-I-E-T-S-V-L-O-G-G-E-R. And you can find out more about the Royal Canal Greenway at waterwaysisland.org. Justin Marr reporting on the Royal Canal Greenway. It's been a busy programme, hasn't it, covering a wide maritime panorama. From aquaculture, fish farming, to ferries, angling, a warship tragedy, and the waterbirds and wetlands in our estuaries. Quite a variety. But we cannot end without remembering what's particularly special in the maritime sphere this month. May Day for the RNLI. From their Irish headquarters, Nia Stevenson has a message and an appeal. Well, it's May, and in the world of the RNLI, that means one thing, May Day. Those of you who have supported the RNLI over a number of years will remember that the end of January used to be the charity's national fundraising appeal, previously called SOS. It's been a few years since we moved it to the month of May, and of course the use of the word May Day for a search and rescue charity has a special and obvious connection – it's always tough asking people to give money. Our fundraisers, all part of the community, do it with a smile on their face and a conviction that through these funds, our Oranali lifesavers can save lives at sea and on inland waters. Supporting May Day and the work of the Oranali means a great deal to our lifeboat crews. When we talk about raising funds, we try and always show where the funds go. At every station, offshore and inshore, there is a lifeboat to be kept in top condition, washed down after every outing by the crew, maintained by a station mechanic, and the yellow wellies and the yellow kit and the fuel and the training and all of that goes to keep a lifeboat station ready for the next Mayday call for help. So, this month, if you can, please don't forget our Mayday call to you for your help. You can find more information on oranli.org forward slash support Mayday. Many thanks. Neil Stevenson of the RNLI. So let's all help the lifeboats this month. Our programme email address is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872 555197. That's email at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872 555197. The Maritime Ireland Show is broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland and is widely available on podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon and others. Sound supervision by Justin Mark. There is daily Maritime News on Twitter at Tom McSweeney and our weekly newsletter is on our website tommcsweeneymarine.ie and on Facebook page and LinkedIn. Until next month, the usual wish of fair sailing.